the states that are passing these laws, fetal heartbeat laws, strict trap laws, uh, criminalizing abortion, going that far, these are states that also tend to have high maternal mortality rates. A number of these states have not expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, and what that means is that the women who are getting pregnant don't have regular access to health care at the moment that they get pregnant. tuning in to Case Confirmed. On today's episode, Vijayth and I talked about the legal landscape of abortion in the U.S. with Nicole Huberfeld, professor of health law, ethics, and human rights at Boston University. We covered a lot in this episode, and everything is current as of May 20th, 2019, when we recorded. Although abortion access is often framed as a women's health issue, it affects people of all genders and has implications beyond health. We hope you enjoy this interview as much as we did. Hi, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us today on Case Confirm. Before we jump into this very exciting topic, I was hoping you could introduce yourself to our listeners. My name is Nicole Huberfeld. I'm a professor of health law, ethics, and human rights at Boston University School of Public Health and a professor of law at the School of Law. And I'm part of the Center for Health Law, Ethics, and Human Rights at the School of Public Health and the Health Law Program, which is run by the School of Public Health and the Law School jointly. And what are some of your research interests within within those. So I write a lot about the needs of vulnerable populations and healthcare reform. So often that takes me into the realm where health law and constitutional law intersect. And I write a fair amount about the Medicaid program in particular, the ins and outs of healthcare reform and Medicaid. Um, I write a lot about what's called healthcare federalism, which is the dynamic of choosing which government is best to implement uh, a particular health policy and that interaction between the federal government and the states. But because I write a lot about vulnerable populations, that means I also write about women's health and reproductive rights and how government may or may not be appropriately trying to regulate women's health. Mm -hmm. And that leads, you know, perfectly into our topic for today. Um, So, I mean, as a lot of people are aware, there have been, you know, a wave of pretty restrictive abortion laws. And something I have been seeing on my social media feeds is people saying, well, you know, abortion is a constitutional right. Is that actually true? What, what does that mean when people are saying that? So the Supreme Court has recognized what we call a right to privacy. And that right to privacy includes a variety of things. And so the way I like to explain this is it's not just a right to abortion, but rather rights pertaining to family and pregnancy and reproduction. And they're all sort of blended together if you think about them holistically. So, for example... The court has told us that there is a right to privacy that includes the privacy of the marital bedroom and the privacy that is the relationship between a physician and a patient. And so we can expect that privacy right to include things like access to contraceptives, both for married and unmarried people. And those were cases called Griswold versus Connecticut and Eisenstadt versus Baird. And then the case that a lot of people are familiar with is Roe versus Wade decided in 1973 in which the Supreme Court said that this right to privacy extends to a woman's decision to terminate her pregnancy. So that decision in Roe v. Wade is couched in terms of a physician and a patient being able to have an honest conversation about what's best for the health of that patient, and the constitutional right to privacy, which is grounded in the 14th Amendment, protecting that conversation 
and safe access to abortion. So when people are saying there's a right to have an abortion, that isn't how the Supreme Court has articulated the right, is that there's a right to privacy and it includes access to abortion. So just to be clear, there is no um, national law saying that people have a right to abortion. It's more based on um, court cases dealing with, you know, right to privacy. That's right. So this is largely a matter of U.S. constitutional law. There are some states where the state Supreme Courts have held that there is a right to access abortion under the state constitution. And so, for example, the Supreme Court of Kansas just recently held that there is a right to access abortion under the Kansas state constitution. That's the most recent state to so hold. So this is a multi-layered right, but it is not grounded in federal statutory rights. It is grounded in the U.S. Constitution. Now, there's a bill that's been introduced occasionally that would make it so that there is a federal statutory right to access abortion. And I don't think that that bill will go anywhere, but it's worth noting for your listeners that this act is called the Women's Health Protection Act. And it has been introduced in Congress, I think, in 2017, 2018, and 2019. One could imagine that with a Democrat-controlled House, it could pass the House, but I would be doubtful that it could pass the Republican-controlled Senate at this time. And just to reiterate for our listeners, um, we have now introduced this idea of a national law and state-specific laws. Which one takes precedent? So U.S. law takes precedence. It is because in the U.S. Constitution, there's a clause called the Supremacy Clause that says if there is a question as to whether the U.S. Constitution or a treaty or the laws of the United States are in conflict with the state law, the U.S. law is the supreme law of the land. So that's how that works out. Mm-hmm. So going along that same vein, um, with you know the wave of pretty severe abortion restrictions we've seen, you know, in Alabama, um, Mississippi, Ohio, um, Missouri most recently, I believe. Um, can you break down for our listeners like what exactly is going on here, um, perhaps clear up some misconceptions that you've been seeing? There are a lot of states that are interested in challenging the precedent of Roe versus Wade. And uh, just to be clear, if I can back up for a second, Roe was modified by a case that we call Casey, Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. In that case, the Supreme Court upheld the central holding of Roe, that there's a right to privacy, but it gave more credence to states' interest in the potential life of the fetus. And so it was Casey that opened the door to states being able to regulate the abortion procedure uh, in a more robust fashion. And so since Casey, states have been regulating abortion. I would be hard-pressed to name any state that has no laws pertaining to abortion. But some states do regulate abortion in such a way as to try to completely restrict access to the procedure. And some states don't. Some states make sure that, for example, California makes sure that poor women have access to abortion by paying for their abortions as needed. So it depends on the state you're talking about. But what states have done is they have tried to limit access to abortion in a number of ways. They have enacted laws called TRAP laws, Targeted Regulation of Abortion Provider Laws. Those are laws that make it harder to provide abortions because 
They require certain kinds of reporting in terms of record keeping of the abortion procedure. They make it so that abortion clinics are inspected and relicensed more regularly. They make it so that the people who are um, performing the work in abortion clinics have to have certain kinds of vaccinations. They are special laws that literally target only abortion clinics. In other words, it is long acknowledged that states have the ability to protect the public by regulating medicine. That's something states regularly do. They license healthcare providers. They make sure that hospitals are safe and clean. They license physicians to practice medicine. These are regular functions of the state. The difference with abortion is that some states have chosen to come down in such a way with regulations that it, they are actually trying to shut down access to abortion. So that's what some states are doing, is they're, they're targeting healthcare providers, making it harder for them to run clinics that provide access to abortion, whether they're a total reproductive care clinic or just exclusively an abortion care clinic. And so um, one another example of that kind of law would be some states tried to make it so that physicians who provide abortions have to have privileges at hospitals within a certain distance of their abortion clinic. That kind of law was struck down by the Supreme Court in a case called Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt just a couple of years ago. And so what's happening now is states are trying to figure out how much they can still enact trap laws. Some states, though, are just going for it and trying to outlaw abortion altogether. That's what Alabama did last week. Mm -hmm. yeah. Last week, Alabama made it so that uh, if Roe v. Wade is struck down, or Casey, but it would really have to be Roe because that's the root of the right, then in Alabama, abortion will become illegal. It is criminal for both the physician providing the abortion and the woman seeking the abortion to have the abortion unless the abortion is necessary to save the life of the pregnant woman. So that goes far beyond any of the regulations that the Supreme Court has said are possible in terms of not imposing an undue burden on the right of a woman to seek an abortion. Alabama's law has no legal effect at this moment. So I think this is something that's hard for people to understand. Even though the governor of Alabama signed into law this bill that was duly passed by the legislature of Alabama, it has no legal effect because it directly contradicts Supreme Court precedent. And can you, for somebody who might not know what precedent exactly means, what weight that holds, can you just briefly kind of go over what that is, why it's important? So when the Supreme Court interprets a constitutional provision, that tells everyone in the nation this is what this part of the Constitution means. And every federal and state legislator, every federal and state official, they all take an oath of office to uphold the U.S. Constitution. So it is expected that they will act in a fashion that is meant to uphold the Constitution rather than challenge it. And so when a state enacts a law that contradicts Supreme Court precedent, that law cannot be enforced. It just sits on the books. It's what we call a dead letter. Alabama's hope appears to be that this will be challenged by organizations that support abortion rights like Planned Parenthood or the Center for Reproductive Rights, that 
a federal district court will probably strike down the law under existing precedent because that's what trial courts do. They just apply the law. They don't decide policy. Then it would go up to a federal circuit court, an appellate court, and the federal circuit court probably would also strike that law down unless it was trying to move the ball, which is not the job of appellate courts either. And I think their ultimate hope is that they would get to file what's called a petition for certiorari, which means they're asking the Supreme Court to take the case. If the Supreme Court takes the case, then the Supreme Court would have to decide whether it's going to uphold all the precedent we've been talking about, cases like Roe v. Wade and Casey and Whole Women's Health, or whether it's going to decide that all these cases that have been decided since 1973 are wrong. That would be a radical thing for the Supreme Court to do, and it is very unusual for the Supreme Court to do that, but it does happen sometimes. Do you think that there... I've also seen a lot of hysteria around the possibility of you know Roe v. Wade being overturned, as you said, this precedent being overturned um, at the end of all this. How likely do you think that is? I think that's very difficult to say. Part of the dynamic is that there are two new justices on the court who are widely perceived to be um, conservatively leaning in terms of being politically conservative and socially conservative. That isn't everything you need to know about a justice, though. I think that on the one hand, it is important to try to have an understanding of how the justices think, because there's only nine of them. And we have seen in some of their early cases that they, these new justices, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, tend to vote with the other justices who are perceived to be more conservatively leaning. But it really depends on the question at hand. The Supreme Court decides all kinds of cases. Some of them are constitutional questions. Some of them are statutory questions. Some of them are cases that are criminal law matters. Some of them are cases that are civil rights matters. Some of them are cases that are just really straightforward questions about what a law means. And so our understanding of a particular justice's ideology doesn't tell us everything we need to know about how the court will decide a case. The Supreme Court only takes cases because they're hard or because there's a disagreement amongst federal courts as to what something means, whether it be a constitutional provision or a statutory provision. In this instance, people are nervous because if you think you can count the votes, it appears that there would be five votes that are hostile to Roe v. Wade. But the court doesn't always do what's predicted. And so, for example, just a couple of months ago, there was a, a question as to whether a law in Louisiana that looks a lot like the Texas law that was struck down in Whole Women's Health should be enjoined, meaning it should be stopped from being enforced because uh, the Fifth Circuit was going to allow that Louisiana law to move forward. There was a trap law, just like the Texas law that was struck down in Whole Women's Health. Can you explain briefly what the Fifth Circuit means? The Fifth Circuit is the federal appellate court in which the state of Louisiana sits. So each state has one or more federal trial courts that sit in the state, and then the states get pushed into regions that create the federal appellate courts that are called circuits. It used to be, just as a point of interesting history, that the Supreme Court justices actually physically rode circuit. 
they would get on their horses and ride around the circuits and hear cases. So that's where that terminology oh, wow. comes from. Interesting. <laughs> How many circuits are there? Uh, there are 11. 11. Yeah. So, and you can find a map of them online very easily. Uh, and some of the circuits are considered to be more conservative than others. And Louisiana sits in a circuit, the Fifth Circuit, that people consider to be a more conservative circuit, politically conservative than others. And the Fifth Circuit was going to allow Louisiana to move forward with its trap laws, even though they looked exactly like laws that had been struck down in Texas. The Supreme Court was asked a very limited question, which was whether that Louisiana law could move forward or not while the legality of the law was being litigated. Chief Justice Roberts voted with the four more quote-unquote liberal-leaning justices to enjoin the Louisiana law while the legality of that law is being litigated. So people wanted to know, well, what does that mean? We think of Chief Justice Roberts as being a more conservative justice, and he is, except that he also tends to be concerned about the institutional integrity of the Supreme Court, and that means following precedent, because we can't rely on the decisions of the Supreme Court if they change all the time. And so we rely on the Supreme Court to adhere to its own precedence. And the Chief Justice seems to have a strong sense of the need for stability and integrity in the decisions of the Supreme Court. So really, it seems like people are waiting and watching to see what he will do. I'm so glad you just explained all of that because, especially now in this age of social media where things things, ideas, you know, just kind of like take off like wildfire without really understanding whether or not, you know, those perceptions, right, are based in reality. If there's one thing like our listeners take away from today, it should be that things are much more complicated, you know, than just kind of like a hashtag and whatnot. And like, and yes, you know, we should be having these conversations. But yeah, it's a lot more nuanced than, oh, you know, five of the nine judges are Republicans. That's exactly right. It's a really important point. I think it's also important to understand that until the Supreme Court decides anything, all of these state laws are basically unenforceable. All of the state laws that are designed to challenge Roe, they don't have any effect in the states in which these laws are being enacted until we learn one way or another from federal courts whether these laws can stand. So there's a process to this. I feel like when legislators or governors sign these bills into law, there's this big splash and all this reporting, and then suddenly they're like, oh no, people in Alabama can't get an abortion anymore. Now, pragmatically, that was already close to true, but that's a different conversation than the meaning of this particular law. This particular law has no effect under the laws that exist right now. So I work as a case manager for the Eastern Massachusetts Abortion Fund, so I've been in conversation with other case managers I know from around the country, from the South, and exactly what you just said, like, they have clients calling them out of misconception that abortion is now illegal and that they have to now go to X state in order to have the procedure, which, like you said, pragmatically, due to all the trap laws that have been passed um, in recent years, traveling out of state is already a reality for some people, um, but it's not because of, you know, the Alabama law or whatever law that's been passed um, in the past few weeks. That's right. And then, uh, conversely, 
there are some states that are trying to do more to protect women's access to abortion. So New York, Vermont, Nevada, right? There, there are states that are trying to do more to make sure that either their state constitution or their state law protects access to abortion. Again, it doesn't have too much meaning until something happens constitutionally. It's almost symbolic until something else happens. Can you explain what a trap law is for our listeners? A trap law is a targeted regulation of abortion provider law. It is a law that is designed to make the existence of abortion providers more difficult. So it will require things like um, more frequent renewal of licensure for the facility or for the physicians in the facility. It will require things like um, having a facility that is closer to hospital standards than doctor's, doctor's office standards. It will require things like special reporting requirements for all of the abortions performed in the facility. It will require things like special vaccination requirements for the people working in the facility. It will require things like the physician or physicians who work in the facility will have to have admitting privileges at a hospital within a certain radius of the clinic. That one is especially difficult because hospitals grant admitting privileges not only based on the specialty of the physician and the quality of care the physician provides, but also based on economics in terms of whether the physician will bring business to the hospital. OBGYNs don't bring a lot of business to hospitals. Maternity wards are actually notoriously expensive to maintain for most hospitals. So regardless of who the OBGYN is, whether they provide abortions or not, it can be difficult for OBGYNs to get admitting privileges at a hospital. And so the admitting privileges facet of trap laws is the one that really shuts these clinics down because there's nowhere for these physicians to get their admitting privileges. Further, they are legally unnecessary because anyone who shows up in an emergency department has to be treated under the law we call EMTALA. It's a federal law that requires everyone to be treated or transferred appropriately if they show up in an emergency department. So these laws have no reason to exist other than to make it impossible to provide abortions. And going off that as well, Abortion is a very safe procedure the vast majority of the time. So even an in-clinic procedure, I think it's like it's like 92, 93% um, of abortions do happen in the first trimester. Yes, things do get a little more complicated as you go deeper into pregnancy. Um, but the vast majority are not even surgical procedures, and they're imposing the standards of a surgical facility. So even with, with that whole admitting privileges piece, you're not going to be admitting anybody because... People are safe. I think I saw I saw one yeah. study where comparing um, complication rates from like a first trimester in clinic um, abortion procedure to oral surgery, like um, in a dental office. In a dental office, yeah. And there were higher rates of complications that required going to a hospital in um, for oral surgery. There are higher rates of complication for colonoscopy than for first trimester abortion. First trimester abortion is incredibly safe. It is not surgery. That's the other thing that mm-hmm. I think people need to know. It requires insertion of medical instruments through the cervix, but it does not require cutting. There is no cutting. It's not surgery. And most many first trimester abortions are now medical rather than quote-unquote surgical, meaning that there is no penetration of the body. There's just medicine. So the laws don't have 
a legitimate medical protective purpose. The other thing that's happening is that some states have tried to create laws that make it so that when you take medicine for a medical abortion, you have to be in a hospital-like setting. Now, the thing that makes no sense about that is that most complications from abortions, to the extent any complications exist, occur after a person has left the clinic setting. They don't occur in the moment. They occur later when a person bleeds. And so none of these so-called protections actually protect the person having the procedure. Right, right. And the only protection I think it could possibly even work for if somebody choked on the medication abortion pill in clinic, that would probably be the extent of of that, which, I mean, is silly. You You could be in a doctor's (laughs) office and be equally protected. You don't need to be in a hospital-like setting for that. No, absolutely not. When you say hospital-like setting, what is that defined as? Something that has an emergency room or something that has surgical capability? What do you define hospital-like setting as? So many of these laws require that an abortion clinic be outfitted like an ambulatory surgery center, which is an outpatient surgery center, meaning that surgeries are performed there, but patients cannot stay for longer than 23 hours and 59 minutes. And so ambulatory surgery centers have special rules about things like how wide the hallways are, they have to be able to accommodate surgical equipment. They have to be able to accommodate hospital gurneys. They have to be able to accommodate all of the equipment of surgery. They have to have recovery rooms for people under anesthesia. You don't have general anesthesia for a, med- for a non-medical abortion, right? So none of these rules actually make sense for the in-office procedure that is an abortion because it's no different than things that happen for fertility treatments, which also don't happen in a surgical setting typically. So the point simply is that it's overkill to require abortion clinics to adhere to surgical standards. I read, this was a few years ago now, but I read a perspective written by staff at Whole Woman's Health in Texas. At that time, they had been adhering to, you know, the ambulatory surgical center requirements. And they were saying, you know, some of the medications that they were through um, HB2, the, the Texas bill that... Um, that imposed these um, these restrictions. They were having to buy in bulk these medications that they needed, these like kind of emergency equipment, it's like, and then just having to throw them out every time they expired and just buy new ones. But they were never being used because it was just unnecessary to have them in that setting in the first place. That's right. Yeah, it, it's a hugely expensive requirement, and it does shut down abortion clinics. This is where Whole Women's Health actually is really important because. Texas was asserting that it created trap laws to protect the health of women. And the Supreme Court in Whole Women's Health said, you can't just assert that you're protecting the health of women, you have to actually protect the health of women. So if your laws are shutting down all of the abortion clinics in the state, that is actually dangerous for women who need to seek an abortion. And that means that you are not protecting the health of women and you are endangering the health of women. So we cannot defer to your decision, Texas, because you are actually doing the opposite of what you're describing. And so states were supposed to take a cue from that, that they can't just assert life or health. They have to be able to back it up with rational information. And that will be part of what's at play in these fetal pain and fetal heartbeat laws, is whether there's any science to those laws, which the Supreme Court has not investigated yet. Let me restate that. The Supreme Court doesn't investigate 
the Supreme Court analyzes. So that has not been argued to the Supreme Court yet. Casey tells us that before the line of viability, which is some would say as early as 24 weeks, but it's exceedingly rare for an infant born at 24 weeks to survive. Usually it's later than that. I can tell you as a mother, if my daughter had been born at 24 weeks, I would have been terrified. Uh, But setting that to the side, Casey tells us the line of viability is an important line in regulation of abortion. Up to the line of viability, the pregnant woman has a greater privacy right than the state's interest in the life of the fetus. After the line of viability, the state can express a stronger interest in the life of the fetus because it can exist outside the body of the pregnant woman. And so the state can regulate abortion all the way up to the line of prohibiting it after viability, so long as there are exceptions to protect the health and the life of the pregnant woman. So what is happening in some of these states going beyond trap laws is that some states are passing what are called fetal heartbeat laws, where they're claiming that a fetal heartbeat can be detected as early as six weeks into pregnancy, and so abortion can only be obtained up until six weeks. Clearly, six weeks is not the line of viability. A six-week fetus looks like a pink bean. So we're nowhere near the point of something that looks like a human being able to be born. That's not possible. Some people don't even find out that they're... I mean, many people have no idea that they're pregnant at six weeks. And even the whole heartbeat language is really used to rouse, you know, emotion in people. It's really, what was the term, like fetal cardiac pole activity? Like there is a little something there, but it's no, right, there's no heart to beat, but there is like a little electrical impulse. Right. But yeah. Heart cells. Right, exactly. Heart cells that are being formed, but no heartbeat. That's right. So it's not a heart because there isn't one yet. It is an electrical pulse that is the early sign of some kind of life. So, as you noted, the tricky thing about these laws is, there's a couple of tricky things, actually. One is, a lot of women have no idea they're pregnant at six weeks. You could totally miss the signs if you have no idea what pregnancy looks or feels like. If you're someone who has um, an irregular menstrual cycle, you might not even begin to suspect that you're pregnant at six weeks from your last menstrual cycle. Right? There are all kinds of reasons that it is difficult. Not to mention that the current standard is that pregnancy is measured from the date of your last period, which itself is a conversation we should probably have because that's an absurd way to measure pregnancy. However, that being the case, that also means that it pushes back probably by four weeks what we count as six weeks, meaning that it will make it virtually impossible for most women to access an abortion legally in states that are passing fetal heartbeat bills if they are deemed to be constitutional at any point in the future. So that's the big if. As of right now, six weeks is not anywhere close to the line of viability, so those laws are political theater until we have some other information. One thing I'm curious about, and we've touched on a little bit, so recently when I looked up the other day, it's something like over 430 trap laws have been passed since 2011, Um, This year in 2019 alone, like 300 new laws have been proposed, some passed, some not, Um, with this just huge, you know, uptick in in trap laws and restrictions. um, I think it's like over a third of like all abortion restrictions since 1973 have happened since, you know, 2010, 2011. Do you have any insight onto what that is? Like what, what is this fervor that we've been seeing in the last almost decade or so to really go after this? 
So let me start with the narrow point and then broaden it. The, the narrow point is that Whole Women's Health was decided in 2016. So those trap laws that were put into place before Whole Women's Health, many of them cannot be operationalized at this point they, because the Supreme Court has said you can't have these laws that shut down all the clinics in your state. That's, that's the whole thing with what's going on with Louisiana, right, is that they have trap laws that look exactly like Texas's, and they were supposed to have not been enacted. They're not supposed to be enforceable because the Supreme Court has said this endangers women's lives. You can't do it. So, yes, there is a trend in states passing these laws, but you have to also put in that chart, in your mental chart, that in 2016 the Supreme Court put the kibosh on those laws, right? That being said, what's going on is that Americans United for Life crafts model legislation. They look for new ways to try to restrict access to abortion, and that was their new way. And you can see, actually, if you can get your hands on model legislation created by Americans United for Life, um, that some state legislatures have adopted it wholesale, including you'll even find the same typos in the bills from the model laws. So it's pretty clear what's happening. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what they're trying to do. I mean, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, I leave up to you. But that is the fact of what's happening, is that there are organizations that are drafting model laws for state legislatures to take up, and they get enacted because they look like a new path for challenging these precedents. So they literally get the bill essentially already written, and they just have to fill in the blanks with their state specifics. That's right. Has there been much research done into the implications of trap laws? Like, what is actually happening? Yes, clinics are shutting down. Um, do we have evidence to show how this is impacting public health? It makes it so that women have fewer places to go. And it isn't just about abortion providers. In especially rural areas, there may be only one healthcare provider who can help a woman with her reproductive health needs. And if that person or facility shuts down, that makes it so that a woman who becomes pregnant does not have a safe place to be treated. There is plenty of evidence to show that. We have what are called maternity deserts throughout the United States, places where women have to travel vast distances to get any kind of reproductive health care, whether for abortion or pregnancy or something else. And these maternity deserts endanger the lives of women, whether they're seeking an abortion or seeking to deliver their baby safely. The very first thing I read that kind of got me, you know, involved in this conversation was back in 2014, The Atlantic, I believe, published an article titled Rise of the DIY Abortion in Texas. And I remember it caught my eye. It had never been an issue I knew much about, but I remember um, it, it was an investigative piece looking at how um, people were smuggling, essentially, misoprostol, um, one of the medic medications involved in a medication abortion from Mexico, from Mexican pharmacies through like flea markets essentially on the border to give to people in Texas in order to um, induce their own abortion essentially because because HB2 had you know shut down so shuttered so many clinics um, in after in the year after it took effect and even beyond um, you know just seeking abortions at these clinics that have you know have been forced to shut down from trap laws um, even though abortion is a vital part of healthcare there's also you're also denying people other aspects of reproductive healthcare. That's especially important, and to me, that is the public health big picture here, is that regardless of where a person stands on their religious or moral views of abortion, the fact is that it is a medical procedure 
yet is a medically necessary procedure for some pregnancies. And when we eliminate one medically necessary procedure, we endanger the lives of pregnant women. That is the meta-meta here, right? The fact that eliminating one medically necessary procedure endangers the lives of women. And the problem is there's a trickle-down effect. There's a ripple effect to it. So if a state tries to eliminate abortion, that means people who go to medical school in that state are going to have trouble learning how to provide one, right? Which means that you have doctors who don't know how to save the lives of pregnant women as needed because they aren't learning the procedure in the first place. So there's this ripple effect to it. If a state isn't supporting all of the dimensions of a pregnant woman's needs, or the needs of a woman of reproductive age for that matter, right? Because the other thing in this is that a lot of these states are also hostile to contraception and hostile to accurate sex education. So you have people growing up in states who don't actually know how you get pregnant or what pregnancy is. That's a problem. Yes, it's a definitely. huge public health problem. Definitely. This is a public health problem. Absolutely. It isn't just an individual woman's reproduction problem. That being said, those laws also signal uh, the state's approach to women's health in general. The states that are passing these laws, fetal heartbeat laws, strict trap laws, uh, criminalizing abortion, going that far, these are states that also tend to have high maternal mortality rates, a number of these states have not expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, and what that means is that the women who are getting pregnant don't have regular access to health care at the moment that they get pregnant. These are states that tend not to be generous in things like welfare benefits. So there's this tremendously whiplash-inducing overlay between states that don't actually support human life outside of the womb and states that are trying to argue that they are supporting life within the womb. It's almost as if it's not really about the fetus or the embryo, you know, when you break it down like that. What do you think it's yeah. really about? <laughs> I would argue that it is about controlling women's sexuality. Agreed. Mm -hmm. You can find maps that have these overlays that show you where maternity deserts are, where there are healthcare professional shortage areas, and then further, there's a map that you can find online, I can't remember where it was published, that shows Google searches for performing an abortion on yourself. And the number of Google searches for performing your own abortion overlays these places where there are maternity deserts, healthcare health professional shortage areas, and laws that make it difficult to access abortion. So. You often hear people say, you can make it illegal, but people aren't going to stop having abortions. And there are maps to prove that. I mean, <laughs> this is a fact of life. As long as women give birth, women will also try not to give birth. Exactly. Pregnancy is not the normal state of being for a woman. It is an abnormal state of being for a woman. And in the United States, with our rates of maternal death, it is a dangerous state of being for a woman. For as long as people have been able to get pregnant, abortion has existed. There's this one resource, I think it's like 4,000 years of abortion, something to that effect. Um, and it actually shows, like, you know, ancient Egyptian, ancient Chinese texts and stuff about how to, you know, manage your own abortion. So mm -hmm. this isn't just this new thing that, that's been around since it was legalized or, you know, legalized in the 70s. Um, 
it's just a fact of life, just like, the, at least that's how I see it. It's just a fact of life, just like birth and just like all the other decisions we make about our life and what's best for our families and, yeah. Statistically speaking, everybody knows someone who's had an abortion. Yes, absolutely. I think it's one in four. Um, it was one in three not that long ago. Yes. Oh, yes. Statistically campaign, speaking, one in three. everybody knows someone who's had an abortion. Right. Because of stigma, it's, it's hard to talk about. That's right. Would you say that the states that you just described that are enacting these stricter laws are in correlation with the states that did not expand Medicaid? Many of them are. Alabama's a non-expansion state. Missouri's a non-expansion state. Um, a lot of this, Indiana is an expansion state, but they have some, uh, they have some stricter laws, fetal heartbeat law, a couple of other restrictions that are uh, in the midst of litigation right now. But many of these states are Medicaid non-expansion states. Uh, just a point of clarification, in case people are confused. When a person becomes pregnant, she becomes eligible for Medicaid. But before a person becomes pregnant, if she's in a Medicaid non-expansion state, what that means is it's very, very difficult for low-income people to find any source of health insurance, whether it's Medicaid or something else. And thank you for clarifying that point. So, after Roe v. Wade... The fighting began pretty quickly over what it meant, um, and for example, the Hyde Amendment came into existence at the federal level in 1977. And can you, so, ex- can you um, tell our listeners what the Hyde Amendment is? So the Hyde Amendment is a federal funding rider on funding for the Federal Department of Health and Human Services, and every year when the Department of Health and Human Services gets refunded by Congress... This rider gets placed on those funds, and the rider says that federal money can't be used to pay for abortions, and it varies. Usually there are exceptions for rape, incest, and to save the life or health of the pregnant woman, but it varies from year to year, and there have been years where it's more restrictive than that. So the Hyde Amendment was litigated in a Supreme Court case called Harris v. McRae. In 1980, the Supreme Court said that the Hyde Amendment was a constitutional exercise of Congress's spending power authority, because even though there is a right to access abortion, that doesn't mean you have a right to have the government pay for it. Mm-hmm. I remember this really powerful quote from, I believe he was a representative, Hyde, who, mm-hmm. who the um, Hyde Amendment is named after at the time, and I wish I'd had it on me, but it was something like, he said something to the effect, if you know, I could you know, outlaw abortion for all people, I would. But for right now, Medicaid presents the greatest vehicle for which to do so. So it's basically That's exactly what he said. He said, yeah. if I could, I would prohibit all abortions, but all I can do is affect those that we spend money on, basically. Right, which is targeting, you know, poor people who, who rely on Medicaid for services. Justice Thurgood Marshall wrote a dissent in Harris versus McRae that was the only clear-eyed opinion in that whole case where he said, by definition, women who rely on Medicaid to pay for medical care cannot pay for medical care. If we are denying them payment, we are denying them care, by definition. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's no really other way to to spin it. No. No. To close out the conversation, I wanted to ask from your both professional and personal opinion, what are some of the policies that you feel would sort of help this topic in terms of providing effective healthcare? add education to both women who are either trying or trying not to conceive? I think a good place to begin would be with stronger 
education for children in terms of scientifically based education about our biology. I think it's really important for people to use the right words for body parts. I think it is important for schools to be responsible about science versus religion, ethics, and morals. Those are important things for students to learn. And we give our children a bigger toolbox if we use the right language for what they are learning. Now, I'm not saying that parents shouldn't have conversations with their children about the facts of life. They absolutely should. But there are places where children are not receiving accurate scientific information about how the human body works. They receive misinformation about how you can get pregnant. They receive misinformation about how things like sexually transmitted infections occur. And that leaves our children vulnerable, and that makes them vulnerable adults. We also know that in places where people don't have um, easy access to healthcare, they're less health literate because they have fewer interactions with the healthcare system, which can make the healthcare system more intimidating. And people tend to have fewer interactions with the healthcare system when they can't pay for healthcare. And so I am a huge fan of trying to look at this from the perspective of getting everybody into the system. And so for me, it comes back to if we're working with what we have now, Medicaid expansion, get everybody in. Because even when children are eligible for Medicaid, if their parents are not insured, they are less likely to be insured. So Medicaid expansion isn't just about the expansion population, but also the health of the children of those people. It is important, I think, to make sure that girls understand that their bodies are not merely decorative, that our bodies are functional, and that we need to take care of our bodies, that they don't exist for other people but for ourselves. So I think that women's empowerment includes girl empowerment, and I think that we have to speak truthfully and gently but honestly with our kids about what it means to have ownership of your body. And that's true for boys too. But I do think that girls especially need to learn to honor the strength of their bodies. Thank you. I think that was incredibly well said. Um, and okay, I think I agree. A, yeah, I think a lot of people will appreciate that. So last point, um, I know we're getting short on time. Um, do you have any recommendations for perhaps news outlets or resources for people who want to, um, I guess, you know, push through the noise when it comes to when it comes to these laws and kind of what they're seeing maybe on social media, more, you know, factual, unbiased, but still digestible information on these issues? Absolutely. So I have a few resources that I think can be useful depending on how much information you want. If you want to follow what's happening with the Supreme Court, there's a website called SCOTUS Blog. So SCOTUS is short for Supreme Court of the United States. SCOTUS Blog is not a blog. It's a clearinghouse of information. The writers for SCOTUS Blog are highly reliable. They report every day on what's happening at the Supreme Court. You can get a daily email from SCOTUS Blog if you really want to know what's happening at the Supreme Court. You can sign up for daily emails from Kaiser Health News, which I highly recommend if you want to be able to follow health policy in general. And it's a daily aggregator of everything that's happening in health news. Makes it easy to go by subject matter, what's interesting to you, what's happening around the country. Um, Kaiser Health News is a really good resource. 
If you want to understand what's happening on the ground in terms of health policy in D.C., you can get a daily email from um, Politico called Pulse, like I'm taking my pulse. Pulse is highly reliable. They tend to have a pretty good scoop. Um, I think that you can also go to websites like the Guttmacher Institute's website, which is very good at aggregating data about women's health issues. Um, and then what I advise is pay attention to what's happening in your state by reading your state capital newspaper, because that's where you tend to get the most information about what's happening in your particular state. Thank you so much. Um, Nicole, this has been a really wonderful conversation with so much vital information that needs to get out there. So again, thank you so much for coming on. Agreed. I learned a lot today that I had no idea about. Thank, thank you, so you much for interviewing with us. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it.